Cool. Well, it's 11 o'clock, so I figure we'll start. My name is Matt Bach. I am a project director at Harmonix Music Systems. Uh, I am giving a talk on unpacking the myth of the intuitive. Um, my background uh, is actually, uh, I have an art degree, um, but I did a fair amount of electronics engineering. I started out at Harmonix designing rock band hardware and being on the ground in China for months at a time, uh, making sure that all that stuff got shipped. Um, I worked on uh, polishing up the Rock Band 1 hardware. That's when I started. I did the Rock Band 2 hardware and did the initial designs for all of the Rock Band 3 hardware. Real guitar, all that stuff. Um, at about the same time, I was evaluating uh, interfaces for a potential dance game. Um, the dance game eventually became Dance Central. Microsoft showed us a connect. It was a, a perfect handshake, and that's how I got into doing some game design. So... Um, the hashtag for this session, which I, I, I think I'm supposed to show you all, is IntuitMyth, um, and I'm at Matt Bach on Twitter. So first I want to just define and then destruct uh, the intuitive. Uh, so intuitive, using, are using or based on what feels to be true even without conscious reasoning. It's instinctive, or it's chiefly in computer software, easy to use and understand. Likewise, something that's often talked, to, talked about almost identically to intuitive is natural, based on what's learned from nature rather than on revelation, or based on the state of things in nature, arising easily or spontaneously. And recently we've had this concept of a natural user interface. It's a big buzzword in, in UI right now. Um, and newbies have this very large promise they're trying to, to, to uh, relate to both the user and the designer, which is they rely on a user being able to quickly transition from novice to expert. They somehow have low floors, incredibly high ceilings, and you traverse that space in, in a matter of minutes. Um, while it does require some learning, it's eased through design, and you consistently make the user feel like they are successful and aware of the design. So... I think this is a very difficult set of things to achieve, and I want to go through uh, why I think those things are difficult and ultimately try and explain uh, the criteria that I like to use to evaluate the uh, readability and discoverability of any given interface. So uh, there's a YouTube video that I, I quite enjoy um, called uh, A Magazine is an iPad that does not work. And I think this represents a certain generational gap that has been, that has been uh, part of any introduction of new technology. So we'll, we'll give it a look. Um, I, I'm, I imagine some of you have seen it, but uh, we'll all be on the same page if we watch it. This baby is um, trying to pinch the magazine um, because she's generally familiar with the paradigms of an, an iPad more so than a magazine. So she's really unclear as to as to why she can't move the images around on this this uh, thing that is nearly the same form factor as a as an iPad to her. Um, I think this is a unique position to be in. Uh, being a, a young person who is, uh, for whom a, a magazine is, is uh, less intuitive than a book, but uh, it ultimately starts pushing towards an understanding of uh, the intuitive as familiar, which is what I want to get into. Baby is much more fun with this. 
So, the uh, comments that have been part of uh, of the uh, YouTube reaction to this have been pretty varied, and I'm, I'm interested in them. So, um, you know, a few people are, are suggesting that this is failed parenting, and then some people are coming in, in defense and saying, oh, well, failed parenting is not teaching your kids about technologies that they're likely to use, and failed parenting uh, would be refusing to accept that, that, that times are changing, and no one gets mad at their parents or their at parents for having their children play with cell phones um, instead of a quill and and, and a, a bottle of ink. Um, and I love Moonstruck WTF. Start your kids off with the NES and have them work their way up to Angry Birds. At the end of the video, the uh, the, the narrator of the video, the the, the parent of that child, uh, suggests that Steve Jobs has coded uh, her child's OS, but ultimately. Uh, it's not so much coded the OS as much as, as copying behavior that you see. Uh, that's, that's how human beings learn anything. That's how we learn languages. It's how we understand the world around us. Um, this person is taking a particular uh, and sort of culturally informed uh, judgmental uh, take on this thing, saying, oh, if you'd shown this baby books first, then this wouldn't have been a problem. I think... Over the course of the development of history, we've seen uh, various mediums introduced and all sorts of negative cultural connotations associated with those mediums, uh, totally undeserved. Um, the novel in this first quote is being, uh, is being uh, blamed for corrupting the minds and morals of promising youth. Uh, likewise, the moving pictures are causing people to lead dissolute lives, and the telephone is making men lazy and breaks up home life and the practice of visiting friends. Um, I, I ultimately just don't believe this. Uh, I, I think that we have a little bit of fear associated with any new technology and fear of what it will do to, to the world around us, but I think human beings are adept at uh, incorporating technology into their lives in ways that are positive for them. So we could have done, you know, if we wanted this baby to understand uh, the history of phones, is uh, introduce to the baby each one of the phones that, that, that I can um, pick out as archetypical phones throughout time. But it's a ludicrous proposition. Ultimately, uh, the corporate world wants to put these iPhones that you used to have in a little Fisher-Price box and let your, your kid play around with them um, and interact with the, t with the fun touch interface. And so just as biases related to media are generational, so are predilections for us believing that a particular interface or icon is intuitive. And the increasing speed of technology will only exacerbate this issue. And in a global sense, this gets even more complicated. So uh, G. Kim and Kung Lee have a, a pretty interesting study that wasn't particularly conclusive, but I think was an interesting study regardless, which is trying to find cultural differences in mobile phone interface design. So they took a bunch of Korean uh, uh, cell phone users and American cell phone users. They grafted some uh, different icons and had people evaluate the icons and saw how fast people could make evaluations about these icons. And their assertion is that culture is collective programming of the mind. It distinguishes a group of people from others. And that means that their thinking styles, their cognition, all these things are going to be totally different. So we need to design interfaces with, with, those cultural, uh, with that cultural information in mind. So they basically had you know, five things that are standard in a cell phone, call logs, messages, downloads, voice recording, web. And they created three different types of representations, things that they see as completely abstract, things they see as completely concrete, and stuff that is somewhere in the mix of those two things. So 
they tested a number of users, and uh, the the dark line is Korean users, the pink line is uh, American users. And so you can see, as as they're going down each one of these rows, uh, the the semi-concrete uh, icons tend to be particularly resonant for the Korean audience. And as you get more and more concrete, actually the recognition rate goes down. Um, trying to substitute in a tape for voice recording uh, or a, a computer with the letters www on it uh, for a phone is is not particularly uh, meaningful to people. So when they ask people to pick their favorites of these things, there's actually a pretty strong alignment between uh, the American uh, perspective and the Korean perspective. So uh, what I, what I take from this is that you know there's there's two sorts of sets of difference here, right? There's cultural difference, but there's also technological difference. And the thing that we will be dealing with uh, over the next few years is that. Uh, mobile phone penetration is going to outstrip computer penetration. So a lot of the computational paradigms that we have, uh, the ludicrous idea that, that a 3.5 floppy disk, this thing that would be completely foreign to most people, uh, means save, uh, is going to be a problem, a problem that we have to deal with, and a problem that, that, that is going to su ultimately suggest that for us, it, it may be intuitive to say, yes, I'm going to click on this 3.5 floppy disk. I remember what that was. I remember why I had to click on that and what, what saving means in that context and why it represents it, but it's muddy. And this is an old problem. So I dug up this paper, uh, which has the same title as my talk, um, which I, I thought was kind of nice. Um, and it's from 1990, and it's actually uh, two people writing about HyperCard. And they're talking about stuff that, you know, we now have a little bit more formalized terms for, but they're suggesting that, you know, Designers might create computer screens that have pages with spines running down the middle, and the premise is that this is going to make the user experience more friendly and more open to people. Um, we see this all over the place these days. And you're led to expect that what you see in the screen is going to work like a book. Uh, it's going to be a series of pages. If not, the image is misleading. But I like this quote. It's a little like printing a photo of a page on a page before putting words on it. If the book's not affording you any additional design other than making people feel comfortable, what's its real use? And we call this skeuomorphism, a design feature copied from another artifact, another material, even when it's not functionally necessary. So we have uh, shoelace holes on these ABS shoes. We have this very, very tiny handle on, on maple syrup that's supposed to represent a jug. Um, we have the ends of cigarettes, which are colored to look like cork, which was the original cigarette filter. And it's, it's completely meaningless. Um, and then e-cigarettes, which could be any form factor they you could possibly want, but we still maintain this concept of, oh, it's going it's to look like a cigarette that's going to make people understand it. And Apple has been going hog wild with this concept lately. Um, the new uh, iPhoto that's been released for the iPad has these, you know, spread out uh, sets of filters like you would look at Pantone color chips and all these different brushes that are supposed to represent things, giant microphones, pages that turn, lenses, bookshelves. And the idea is that this is supposed to make stuff more friendly. The, the one I don't understand the absolute least is uh, find my friends and why it's leather bound. Um, I, I, don't, I, can't, I think other than maybe Harry Potter and his crazy map uh, is about the only thing I can think of that's trying to point to in terms of its skeuomorph. But this is not a, a new idea, um, you know, the hypercard thing. Moreover, uh, music production software tends to suffer from this. The, uh, a lot of times we want to bring in uh, knowledge that people have from working with hardware interfaces and push that over into the software realm. So Reason is a, a program that is particularly 
uh, insistent on doing this uh, to a ludicrous degree. So that's a, actually, if you want to patch different things together, you are dragging around fake cables uh, on your computer. And there's an exhaust fan. There's a power cable in there. There are screws. Um, it is so much chrome uh, that it's distracting, ultimately. And while if you were someone who had worked in a studio for a long time, it might be great to, ha to have these things that are, you know, work the same way you expect them to. But if you're like me and you're walking into this and saying, okay, like, I have never been able to afford uh, all these different sequencers and drum machines whenever else. I've never had to patch cables back and forth. Um, it's going to be incredibly alienating to me. Fundamentally, these icons are, are not a pencil, they're not a paintbrush, they're not a spray can, they're not a paint bucket. They're, they're images of tools we've appropriated to stand in for functionality uh, and try and communicate it as best we can. And I, I, I like this as well. It, it, it's intended to make people m more comfortable, but the problem really is that we don't see computers as independent of the tools we use them to replace. Computers afford us a lot more, but it's difficult to think of using other images for it. I ran into this head-on uh, as a pretty young kid. I, I decided to start editing video at the age of 12. And so I got myself a copy of Adobe Premiere, and I you know, ran in my footage through something called an iOmega Buzz, and, and uh, my grandfather had given me his old camcorder. And I was trying to take this long string of video that I had and edit it. And all I was doing was, was cutting it. Um, and that was putting it in my clipboard, uh, but I had no concept of any of, of what these things were. Um, and then uh, eventually I found this little icon which I've tried to blow up and I'm, I'm not sure it's particularly readable but what it's supposed to be is a razor blade. Um, I did not know that this was a razor blade. I'll explain to you when I learned that it was a razor blade but to me this was just some, some sort of like, uh, like shank or, or, or random thing that I shoved in the film that was going to cut it apart. Um, because a symbol is only intuitive once you know what it means. Symbols have meaning, not because of natural rules, but because people agree on their meanings and they teach them to other people. So this symbol, uh, everyone in this room knows, knows when they see a door with this symbol on it what it means. But it, arbitrarily it could mean, uh, oh, it's, it's a, a, a woman wearing a skirt or a man wearing a kilt. But actually what's behind that door is a toilet. Um, <laughs> And all we're saying is that this is the gender that is appropriate to use said toilet. And I'm not going to rail about gender norms, um, but that's enough for another time. But regardless, um, the meaning of the female bathroom logo is, is very distinct, but it's, it's something we only learn by either A, making the mistake of walking into the room and, and being like, oh, this is not a place where a bunch of people wearing skirts are hanging out, um, or B, and most likely being told and seeing in very, various cultural contexts that that's what that icon means. So when I got to college, I uh, began making films. And the film program at my school was ludicrously old school. I edited it on a Steenbeck, um, which you know, is ludicrously old technology, like Lenny Riefenstahl was making uh, films on these. Um, it was fun and really interesting and really, 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 really slow as compared to the video editing I've been doing previously. Um, but this was the moment when I learned what that weird little thing was that cut my film apart. Um, it cut me multiple times as I was actually chopping film in half and taping it back together and having to get new razor blades and load them in. And all of a sudden, it was like an aha moment. Okay, all, all the time that, that I previously was associating this weird little thing with cutting film apart, actually it had a, a, physical, a physical metaphor. But I felt very much like this, this 
sorry, I felt very much like this, this baby with a magazine. Like, I, I didn't know what this thing was or, or how it should work, and everything else in my life that I'd experienced previously was giving me no indication of how it should work. So, moving on to the Macintosh desktop. And I love this picture. It's, it's from the same uh, article about HyperCard, and I love that in 1990 they were dragging dirty pictures into the trash. Um, it's a metaphor that people call intuitive uh, because people are familiar with documents and folders and trash cans, but there's a lot that was counterintuitive about this. When you threw a disk away into the trash can, that ejected it. It didn't like somehow make the disk disappear in the same way it made files disappear. It's a little bit, a little bit off. So uh, Jeff Raskin, who uh, is sort of the, the spiritual uh, godfather of Macintosh, um, wrote a very interesting thing to the communications of ACM. Um, he's passed away. Um, rest in peace. But he said, it is clear that a user interface feature is intuitive insofar as it resembles or is identical to something the user has already learned. In short, intuitive in this context is an exact synonym of familiar. And so we will see a Please. fictional character who computer? is used to computers being quite different. Interacting computer? With Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. The keyboard. How quaint. So just as there are generational gaps that, uh, that actually exist um, in the past, there are, there are maybe theoretical future generational gaps that could cause the same problems. But Raskin says, you know, as an interface designer, I'm asked to make things better. I'm asked to make improvements. But oftentimes they're rejected on the grounds that they're not intuitive, that, that, that people aren't grasping them immediately. And so it's a catch-22 in his mind. The client wants something better. I can make something better. But if I'm going to make something better, it's going to be different. And if it's going to be different, it's not going to judge as not intuitive because it's not familiar, because it's different, and it's better. And if we went along with you know, the most uh, baseline understanding of what a telephone would be, our, our iPhone interface would be something like this, a, a, a rotary phone arbitrarily imposed on a touchscreen because maybe that, that is the lowest common denominator. But in the same right, it's not the lowest common denominator for this child who is messing around with the magazine as if it was an iPad. So I want to dig into a little bit how... I perceive Apple to have achieved uh, the cultural understanding of intuitiveness with iOS. Um, generally speaking, when someone talks about why they like their iPad or their iPhone, the word intuitive creeps up. And it often also creeps up in design conversations. I'm sort of fine with it sitting around as a marketing term. I'm going to sort of display how I think that happened. But I think it's very bad for design discourse when you're building a product to aim for intuitive. And I think it's actually an, an unachievable goal. So iOS 1, 6-2007. This pre-apps. This is what Apple's advertising campaigns look like. This is how you turn it on. This is your music. This is your email. This is the web, and this is a call on your iPhone. So throughout all of these initial product demos for, uh, for the iPhone, we're actually seeing all the so, behaviors that you're going to need to know to be able to interact with this product. And most of these mm -hmm. commercials aired before anyone could own this Calamari? product. 
they've used advertising as a platform and millions and millions of dollars behind this to get everyone to know how to use the, the thing before it was in their hands. Literally every single feature that was available on the iPhone 1 had an advertisement associated with it that taught you how to use the interface. And so when you picked it up, you were familiar with it already. You had seen myriad product demos. This is not a water As we move on of the to uh, a, a more diverse ecosystem for or the, the iPhone, version which of the will happen when my computer decides to advance this slide, um, or the kind of sort of we get an like app store. Internet. internet. It's just the internet on your phone. I like to see that they actually do touch the home button. You see like every every nuance of the interaction in those ads. Um, I think it's incredibly intelligent. Uh, and as compared There's to the advertisements you see this. for things, they like to promise what they're going to do to your life, but not show you how it's going to happen. Um, and I think there's a lot of genius in, in Apple's approach to this. Um, beyond also the sort of nice music and their general uh, their general aesthetic, you know, they they've they've got us all being believers to an extent. So, a year later, um, we have had a few interim updates to the iPhone in the meantime, but the real big thing we're going to get to is, is an app store. Um, and this is going to complicate the UI of the iPhone in an immense way. Um, so there's a new education that needs to happen. This is how you enter the app store. And this is how you browse over a thousand new apps. It's literally narrated. And this is how you download one. Right to your phone. This is when you realize. You can recommend a restaurant. This is going to change everything. So around this time, I got in a, a pretty long argument with people about whether, you know, whether or not, you know, the iPhone was just this, this like product of, like above all other products, and that that it, it had somehow cracked design in a way that 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 nothing had before. And I think it did bring a lot of new paradigms, but the paradigms were were existing across a number of various other products. And really, they they were doing synthesis, but they were also doing great education through their marketing and. They continue to do this as they added additional features. So with iOS 3.0, we get a few new features. We get search, we get voice control, we get cut and paste. And literally, this is the new iPhone. We have an ad about cut and paste. Incredible things. You can copy a phone number and paste it in a text. You can copy an article and paste it in an email. Or you can copy a map and. Well, you get the idea. Copy and paste on the iPhone 3GS, the most powerful iPhone yet. We get to iOS 4, and now to teach people multitasking. And the problems are getting more and more complicated, right? If someone's going to buy into this ecosystem, like ideally they've probably seen all the previous commercials, they play with their friends, iPhones, like we have a, a general cultural familiarity that we're, that we're banking on. But now we want to show off all the new features in addition to the standard features all at the same time and tell you that you can get an iPhone on Verizon. We see every gesture here. We see the double tap of the home button in order to get to the, the multitask bar. We see uh, double taps to zoom in. We see pinch to zoom. We see page turning gestures. We'll FaceTime. 
are no longer carrier exclusive. And so uh, with iOS 5.0, the big flagship feature is Siri, and we've all seen these ads recently, and I think they're quite, 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 quite well done. to Santa Cruz, California? Here are directions to Santa Cruz. Where's the best barbecue in Kansas City? Is there a rodeo in Amarillo today? Where are we? Here's your current location. How big is the and notice that camera angle. Always the camera angle of the hand holding the phone. It's exactly your point you. of view as a user. What does Orion look like? I found this for you. Remind me to do this again. Okay, I'll remind you. I'm going to tell you a little bit more of a human story, and I think, I think that, that adds to the strength of the thing. But if you look at like, the, the growth of this platform, it, basically on a yearly basis, there's a new rollout of features. So you have uh, almost a whole year to educate your user base into the new features of your product. So to me, it's no surprise at all that this thing comes across as very familiar to people because it is pushed in your face all the time. It is, I think, absolutely brilliant marketing. And if we look from... 07 to today, we've had 84 different iPhone advertisements, and only two of those advertisements break from the format of a person using the device and that standard camera angle of, of, that, of you holding the device. And it was the launch of the iPhone 1 where we had all sorts of people from the past using phones, um, and the launch of the 3GS, which had like a, some secret spy people or something. But as a, as a point of contrast, um, here's how a droid device gets launched. So while you're fighting robots, if you need to send a text message, break out your double-sided lightsaber. And you rip out dual-core processor from that, that, uh, that awesome robot. You kill him. You're awesome. You Detroit. We have like arbitrary, strange references to the specifications of this thing, and then we just look at it, and that's it. And so, um, when people start to 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 say, "Oh, like the the UI of the Android is so unfamiliar, it's so it's so unintuitive," I think to an extent, it, it's, it's it's poor education on on the part of of the carriers around that UI. I mean, I think there's also the the interesting. Uh, sort of almost cult of design that Apple's been able to enforce in their app store uh, through this same type of education. People want it to feel like an Apple product, and everyone is aware of what that means. So moving away from, uh, from that, I guess I would say like my, my big takeaways are uh, advertising is incredibly powerful. And you can use it for all sorts of different things. You can use it just to try and inspire people towards uh, what, what the potentials of the product are going to be. But when you're building something that you want people to interact with, it's actually really beneficial to show them it and get them familiar with it. And that's going to make them believe that this thing is intuitive, make them believe that somehow they've figured it out, when all along they've been watching it happen. So my team and I had a very, very difficult uh, problem to solve when we began working on the UI for a game we made called Dance Central for the Connect. Um, 
Microsoft furnished us with a really awesome depth camera, great skeletal tracking, but they gave us no indication of what the UI paradigms were going to be like for this device. And we said, okay, well, um, do you have any recommendations? And they said, well, just go ahead and try whatever you want, and, and it'll be okay. So we... We went through tons and tons and tons of iterations to try and figure out a decent way to, uh, to navigate and, and make decisions in a space that was completely undefined. So uh, what I'm going to play you is a short video of people interacting with uh, the shell of Dance Central, and then I'll sort of walk you through a bit of our design process and our thoughts about um, you know, how, how we made this good. Um, and the, the actual... Uh, person running through this is a, an independent uh, evaluator of various designs who is comparing uh, this UI to other UIs. So he's going to talk a little bit through it. I'm going to have to the to highlight the buttons to So on this main screen, we have these arrows that intersect that show you just the initial way to make the gesture. And you have basically one axis. So this in one is better because there's, there's less there's less option here. As in, there's the, the, I'm only I'm only moving in one one um, one um, like axis, if you like. So I know it doesn't matter where my arm is. I'm still moving on that one axis, which is a lot easier than moving in, you know, in a, in a kind of 360 way. And it looks to me like this is quite quick as well. Um, yeah, so as you hold my arm down, it continues. It's a much better use, I think, of, of a menu system, definitely. Okay, good. Um, so I'll just pick this all. Um, yeah, anything that... So there's some subtleties in this UI. There's arrows and arrow sockets on each oh, one of those ribbons that are subtly communicating like, to you the need to push one into the other. Um, we're never using any X movement to define a particular thing other than selection. Once you've got your, your Y figured out, X is, X is just go. Which is, is necessary in, in the system uh, just because of the particular fidelities that Connect offers. We also have a left-handed paradigm. You see the, the, the word back and left hand. If you perform a swipe at for any, any height with your left hand, it's going to move you back in the interface. So you have a push and pull that feels uh, quite good. I'm just back in the left corner. I can just make out left hand. So that, that's cool. Um, it probably could have done with not crossing out the word left hand. So, intuitive. We're going to go back to this definition. Using or based on what one feels to be true, even without conscious reasoning or instinctive. And so I'm going to tell you some reasons why I think our UI is counterintuitive. So we had this great uh, user experience test. I'm a very pro user experience tests. Um, you, they teach you a lot of things, and you, you shouldn't dictate your product by your user experience tests. Uh, you should read them and understand them. We brought a lot of people in. Um, all, from all sorts of ages. And nearly every single participant mimicked touchscreen gestures in the air. They wanted to hover over things and, and believe that they were somehow going to select or push their arm forward, do these sort of like, oddly unergonomic things that were treating this system as if it was a touchscreen paradigm, because that's the thing they were most familiar with. And 
the younger the participant was, the more likely they were to actually just walk up to the screen and start pushing things around on the screen. Um, even though we told them it's a television, there's a camera there, uh, uh, none of that was enough to get them to think outside of the box enough to say, yes, uh, okay, um, this thing actually knows where my body is, and it's going to make judgments based on that. They, they wanted it to have a touchscreen paradigm. But here's why we didn't care. It felt good to us, much better than anything else we tried. And we tried a lot of things. We tried the hover and hold paradigms that are pretty standard for Kinect in, in uh, the Xbox space where your hand's sort of a mouse and you hold it over things, and that's your selection paradigm. We had all sorts of handles. We had wheels that you could spin. And we actually ran numbers of tests and the metrics showed that it was a much more enjoyable experience to use RUI. It was not only faster, um, but people have more fun with it. And so we're bring bring back Rask in here. If it's superior, it cannot be the same, so it must be different. And typically, the greater the improvement, the greater the difference. And therefore, it cannot be intuitive that is familiar. What's funny is we got a lot of reviews about RUI, which is which is crazy because we made it we made a dancing game and every single review had at least a paragraph dedicated to the UI around our dancing game. Um, and I've highlighted in every single one of these reviews, it is quite intuitive compared to some of Microsoft's first party options. It's effortless, intuitive, and responsive. It provides intuitive controls. I found it to be quicker and more intuitive than anything else I've experienced in the technology. In the same way that the Apple advertisements were able to show people uh, how that thing was used and make them feel comfortable and familiar with it, most of these journalists actually played this game at shows. We actually held their hands out and, and taught them to do it, and we increased our, and made better our tutorial over time. So there's a, a pretty biased audience, but moreover, some very funny things start to happen in, in later reviews. Um, once you get the hang of this system, it's fast and intuitive. It's a contradiction in terms. It's natural and intuitive once you realize how to select and choose options. So it, it, at this point in time, we sort of got to the point that, that intuitive just means I like it, um, which is, is somewhat frustrating and sort of un, unactionable. And so the thing I liked, the video we watched earlier was from these people, CX Partners, and they tried to break out point by point why they liked this more than other UIs they interacted with. And they, they thought you know, single-axis movement was, was uh, an improvement over multi-axis movement just because people's proprioception, which is the core of Dance Central, is not that great. Um, and why Dance Central is a hard game for most people who play it is that proprioception is probably one of our least developed senses if you're not an athlete or a dancer um, or a performance artist of some sort. Action over waiting. This is this is this was my uh, my 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 big push for the the UI it was like, I don't want to wait to make a selection. I, it, it, it's boring and it, it reminds me of gorilla arm problems from the 80s. It's exhausting. It hurts my elbows, and it's a positive gesture. It, it makes me feel like I'm I'm making something happen. And even though it probably takes amount, about the same amount of time as if you wanted to just have you hover and wait, you feel like you have some agency in that system. Moreover, the mapping is clear. Um, and it's, uh, it's symmetrical. You push this way and you move forward in the interface, you push that way, you move the opposite way in the interface. And there, there were some like left-right arguments that we had definitely, but um, the, the thought is that you're pushing the screens across. 
and perceived responsiveness. Um, you know, we we did a lot to try and minimize lag. So that's how we were interacting in this sort of non-physical space. But we also had some experience in a very physical controller space. Um, and there's a, a pretty interesting pa a Kai paper written called Mapping the Road to Phone, uh, Natural Video Game Controllers, Presence in Game Enjoyment. And the authors of this uh, paper postulate there are four types of controller mapping. They call them arbitrary mapping, which is what a standard game interface has. We tell you that these buttons do these things, and it's not like A uh, looks like jumping or feels like jumping. Um, it just, it's jumping. And... Uh, you're going to go with us on that. X is going to make you traverse cover. You're going to go with us on that. Um, direction natural mapping is to say that, okay, we'll use the analog stick and its direction will be correct within the game space and the same within the controller space. They have kinesthetic natural mapping. That's more or less the, the dense central paradigm where you're only really existing in space and, and that, that, that's the mapping that you have. And then realistic, tangible, natural mapping. It's, it's, a, it's a mouthful, but really what they're talking about is uh, a steering wheel or a guitar controller or a uh, flight simulator controller. It is, it is as realistic and, and standard as an interface could be for that type of activity. And if you look at games as, as opportunities to try out all sorts of different facets of things that you couldn't do otherwise, you couldn't drive cars at that fast. You can't go and fly planes um, by paying $100 and uh, plugging it into your Xbox. Um, it's trying to, to get there. So intuitive equals familiar, take three. Again, I see some problems in, in their reasoning, but they're saying, like, even though some interfaces may lack natural mapping on the surface, they may become more natural over time as a function of repeated use. Again, I think this is a contradiction of what natural is. Um, by saying that, that people are comfortable with QWERTY, it's, they're saying they're familiar with it. It's not natural to them. Um, there are a, a limited set of things, I think, that are natural to human beings, um, and most of them are probably not so great to talk about in the context of this talk. Um, it, it was a dominant way of typing. People perceive it as natural, but I think people perceive it as comfortable. Um, and their investigation were, like, was ultimately about you know, short-term testing of these things. And you know, they saw that, that the, more, the, the, the latter, the non-arbitrary controller mappings tended to make games more fun for people. And they're postulating that like, maybe that was because of the novelty of these interfaces, but maybe there was something more there. And so I want to dig into places where I think there might be something more there. Harmonics made a game uh, long before I worked for them um, called Amplitude. And Amplitude has a lot in common with Rock Band. There's uh, gems coming towards you, and you are hitting them on the beat. What you're using is a, a, a PlayStation 2 DualShock controller uh, in an arbitrary map state to hit these gems. So we'll take a look at a gameplay video. Um, sorry. Huh. We won't take a look at a gameplay video. Um, I can show you that later. But if you, I'll um, put my cursor over here. Yeah. So the, the three lanes of gems that you could be hitting um, as shown in front of the blasters of your spaceship uh, are actually mapped to this button here, this button here, and this button here. And while you can play them with these three buttons, and that's a little bit more of an actual directional mapping, um, high-level players all play in this abstracted way where they're evaluating three linear lanes and interpolating them into three arbitrary fingers. People got really good at this, 
but it had a very, very limited audience. When we moved over into the world of rock band, we had a very, very strong tie between the layout of the buttons and the layout of the screen. And I honestly believe that the success of uh, the guitar and rock band products that we made it has a lot to do with the interface and the controller having a tight one-to-one -one connection, having a, what I would say is a, a coincident input-output space, um, regardless of the fact that, that you, know, you, aren't, you aren't touching the screen the same way that like, a, a coincident input-output space happens in a touchscreen, but they have as much coincidence and as much correlation as they could possibly have. And it makes people uh, much more likely to pick the thing up, play it, and, and feel like they understand it with, within a very limited amount of time. And as another case study, I want to take a look at Punch-Out and Punch-Out Wii. Um, th this, is, this is one of the more perplexing case studies that I've come across in, in gaming. So I'm, I'm, I'll play a little bit of, uh, of what Punch-Out is, just for my own enjoyment, really. Um, So Punch-Out is a puzzle game-ish um, made by Nintendo um, in the late 80s. It was intended originally to be an arcade game. It was then released for the NES. And an interesting thing that happened while they were making this game is that uh, someone that uh, Shigeru Miyamoto was working with was suggesting that, that, that they should make gloves and have the interface be gloves and you're punching with the gloves. And Miyamoto says, as someone who plays video games, I told them I did not like ambiguous interfaces or ones that were hard to figure out. That's why we decided to use a joystick and buttons to make it as easy as possible to understand. So what I think that shows it to some extent is that there's a flexibility to our understanding of what is or is not intuitive, and it's ultimately about what your expectations are and what you're familiar with. So when we move on to uh, the, the re-release of Punch-Out for the Nintendo Wii, um, Miyamoto changed his tune in a sort of strange way. Um, now you basically have the boxing glove controller that he rejected some uh, more than 20 years earlier. And he's saying, because motion sensors are being taken for granted, uh, it's okay to make a game like this. But before that, it was ahead of its time. And he's saying, you know, he thinks his role is to make it fit in the current era, like meet the current style. And I think what ultimately he's saying is that he is now familiar enough with this to take the risk to make it a physical interface. And previously, it was outside of his comfort level and outside of his familiarity to try and make something that had real boxing gloves. It didn't feel right to him. It didn't feel precise to him. It didn't feel like a game to him. And over time, that changed. So what I want to get to are better and more actionable goals than make it intuitive. Because I sit in a lot of meetings um, with high-level designers, and I will, get in, I will interview designers, and they will tell me that uh, the goal of, of any one thing they're doing is to make this thing intuitive. And I just don't think it's an actual goal. I'm, I think all of the evidence that, that, I've, that I've shown as, as, of, as of, or throughout this talk has sort of proven that you, you can't go about trying to make something intuitive for everybody. You can take advantage of the knowledge base that anyone has, but if you want to make something new and something that, that sits outside of existing paradigms and you want to, that to feel intuitive to people, you have to do a different set of things. So I'd say, first, try and make the thing you're doing discoverable. If you don't have millions of dollars like Apple does to, to spend on, on advertising your product and showing people exactly how to use it on TV uh, at regular intervals, um, try incorporating indicators of its functional elements into its aesthetics. Um, the ribbons in Dance Central have these little arrows and little arrow circuits. The initial time that you see 
the swipe interface is actually a key and a keyhole that you move in. And so just trying to take things that are, that are very broadly understood metaphors and allow that to be discoverable. Furthermore, do not have high-risk interactions tied to things early on in your product. If people feel like they are at a high-risk scenario in trying things out, they're not going to be comfortable with the system because they think they're going to break it, and they won't try go out and go out and discover. So it's not only that the mechanics should be discoverable, but the environment you're creating should be one where people feel like they can take the risk associated with discovery. And don't be afraid of including a tutorial. It's not embarrassing, it's not a failure on your part if you, if you cannot communicate something that's completely brand new to people without telling them it. Sometimes you just have to tell if you're going to change paradigms. Second, coincident input and output, output or clear mapping. Working in a coincident space is always going to feel more familiar because it's largely how we interact with non-digital objects. Like the, the reason that touchscreens are so nice for kids is like, you know, kids like to push things or, or even like my cat likes to play with touchscreens. My cat also likes to knock things off of tables. Um, and it's a very, very similar thing. If you can, if you can afford coincident input and, input and output, that's great. If you can't, a clear mapping is, is the best thing you can possibly do. And I think the, the rock band illustration of that is, is, uh, is the, the one that I'm most familiar with. But it's been done in a number of different ways. Um, and understand the interface that you're designing for and come up with your ideal mapping within that interface. Take, take that all into account. Make the interface very reactive especially during the discoverable phase, right? while you're trying things out, the more quickly the interface can respond, the quicker the user is going to understand the rules of the system. And also, don't be afraid to make react highly reactive elements whose reactivity outstrips their utility. So it's, it seems a little counterintuitive, but if you look at uh, um, ice cream sandwich on Android, there's very, very intense things that happen during overscroll. You get these like blooms that will begin to happen. Um, you can pull a list up on the iPhone way, way farther than would ever be useful. But it's it's letting you play with the ex with the, the sort of extremes of that system, and it's making you better understand how its physics work and better understand and want to explore more things. If you can't pull from the bottom, you might never learn that if you pull from the top, you're going to get a search bar. Um, it encourages that type of discoverability and making things highly reactive makes them more discoverable. This is a no-brainer, but consistency. You know, just avoid dissonance. If a given action or icon has a specific behavior in a certain context, do everything within your power to maintain that behavior across the entire interface. It is hard. It's really hard to do this because you're going to want to do a lot of different things with your product and want to do a lot of different things with your interface, but inspect yourself. Look, look across your product and say, am I using a floppy disk icon to say save and then also a checkbox icon to say, yes, I want to do this? Aren't those the same thing? Can we just go with the checkbox? Um, symmetry and congruence. Consider the shape of your interaction flow and evaluate the places where behavioral symmetry breaks down. Am I used to pushing back in a certain place on the screen? Am I used to using a capacitive button to push back? Am I used to doing a certain gesture to push back? And has that been arbitrarily remapped to uh, incorporate a goal or a system that doesn't quite jive with the system that I initially designed this thing for? How can I fit that in? Because people form gestural habits and if you make them symmetrical as possible, they're going to start grasping other elements of the system by mastering this one part. If they understand that this is forward motion and this is backwards motion, 
um, they're going to get backwards motion quickly after they've understood forwards motion. So having, having that symmetry uh, can aid you in making your users familiar with your interface. Be aware of your user bias. This is easier when you're designing for a very specific group and not the broad everyone that we're hoping to address. I mean, the, the, global, the global issues, the generational issues, like, they're almost insurmountable. And uh, you should have some idea of who your user base is. And don't design to the bias. If you have a better idea, um, get your better idea out there. But be sure to account for the bias that's going to exist on any given platform or with any given group of people. You, you need to understand what they think and what they're going to think and account for it so that you can inform them as to you know, where the paradigm is changing so you can push things forward, so you can make those leaps that are going to make user interfaces nicer and more approachable for everybody. Um, or if applicable, just stand on the shoulders of giants. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with taking great UI and just using great UI that exists out there that everyone's familiar with. Um, if you don't need to improve the system, you don't. Universal metaphors. This is an unachievable goal. So uh, the icon here is, is uh, one of my favorite uh, icons in the world. And it was, it's, it's supposed to be an icon that if the entire human race and all culture it, it goes away, that the nuclear waste we've buried underground is going to, uh, it's going to communicate to you that you should not go near it. There's so much broken about this. <laughs> Nuclear waste, the, the, the nuclear symbol, how am I going to make any sense out of that? It kind of looks like a flower to me, and like it's like radiating sunlight onto these humanoid figures. Like, aren't we trying to stop this radiation from like maybe some hyper-evolved version of like lizards that look nothing like, uh, like bipeds? Like, who knows who's going to approach this sign? Um, universal metaphors are an unachievable goal, but those are my favorite kind. You, you, you try and try and try, and you'll, you'll never get there. You're, it's, it's an asymptote, and, and it's an asymptote if you're lucky. Um, but it's somewhat worth trying. And I guess I will end with um, a long quote from Douglas Engelbar, who's sort of the, the, the grandfather of all of this discourse. He's the man who invented the mouse. Um, he uh, thought of email um, years and years and years and years before uh, any of these things were a, a glitter in anyone's eye. Um, if you could ever get a chance to watch one of his demos on YouTube, um, they're really, really, really amazing. But he's basically saying that, that what, what we can do is increase the capability of human beings to approach complex problems, to gain comprehension, and to derive solutions to problems. And our jobs as UI designers is to make that less complex and speedier so that people can absorb more complex information, solve more complex problems, and cut away all the problems that exist. We have a world full of hunches, cut and tries, intangible feels for, for situations. And we want that to coexist with powerful concepts, streamlined terminology and notation, sophisticated methods, and high-powered electronic aids. And Douglas really believed that if we keep pushing on UI and we keep trying to make it the best thing possible, what we're going to enable for ourselves is access to information that will better humanity in, in the broadest of ways. And I think that that's the greatest thing that you can do. I, I just make games. Um, but we're all working towards ways to, to minimize the, uh, the friction and maximize the familiarity that people can have with, uh, with their UIs as soon as possible. Um, so 
in closing, thank you for listening to me rant about words that I hate. Um, and encourage your teams, encourage people you work with, encourage yourself to be critical about what your goals are and, and really formulate those goals in ways that you can judge are succeeding or not succeeding. Um, that's the most important thing. Don't ever let anyone use the word intuitive as a conversation shut down. Thanks. I have 10 minutes to take questions. Go for it. Or if we want to queue up as a mic, I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't care either way personally, but I don't know if it's better for audio recording if it's on the mic. Yes, no? Okay, yeah, so we'll, we'll queue up at the mic. Great presentation. Uh, I was surprised to hear so much uh, sharp thoughts on uh, user interface design from a game designer because uh, I usually think that a lot of bad interaction design comes from people imitating games where to a certain degree you have to th make things complicated um, and you know, then it gets directly ported to practical, more practical user interfaces. What is your stand on the main difference between yeah, practical user interfaces and games where you do need a certain uh, degree of complexity to keep it interesting. I think the, the, the nice things that, that games afford is a, a level of, of moving through complexity. And I wouldn't say that the, sort of the games that I work on uh, always do that. Um, I think especially with Dance Central, when you're dancing, you're pretty much cognitively overloaded trying to copy dance moves, and I think you can't think about much else. So you try to like layer on other mechanics, and it breaks for like 99.9% .9 of people. It's really, really hard to dance. But if you think about a lot of other games where you're affording yourself all sorts of new things over time, your controls are getting more and more complex over time, that what's interesting about that is the way in which it's built into a tutorial system that is, that is existent throughout the entire game. And there's this really cool thing. There's this thing called Ribbon Hero, which is a, a, a game that teaches you how to use the ribbon in Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it, they've actually started to build like achievements into some of the, the Microsoft Office products um, and development products. And I think those types of concepts where you're encouraging exploration by limiting people's access to things uh, initially and then building up that complexity over time uh, is the thing that, that, that games are able to do that the programs don't necessarily want to do because they don't know where you're coming at, the, at them. A game always knows you're coming at a zero state to a certain extent. Um, and the goals of a game, yeah, really are to have fun, are to like, let people have that high-level complexity, be making multiple decisions per, per second. And the goals of, of a, a productivity piece of software, a social piece of software, are, are quite different. But I think if you can take the ethos of, let's introduce it a bit at a time, that that's the best thing that, that any other type of UI design can take away from the gaming space. Um, so I have a question from a graphic design point of view with the iconography. And I see a challenge because it seems there are three scenarios. One where we can all agree that this icon means this thing, uh, regardless of the metaphor. Uh, the example being play, rewind, uh, pause. Those icons, we all get it. So it's established. It's almost like a language. But then you have things like the save button, which has a floppy disk, which is essentially an obsolete metaphor. And then you have really forward-thinking uh, functions or features like checking in. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think would be a good approach at creating a really universal icon for metaphors that can withstand the test of time? I think using text and icons at the same time is often really valuable and allowing there to be a view where you can see the text under an icon um, and then that text can go away uh, is, is a pretty decent way to inform people as to what the behaviors of icons are. I think that, that as I said, like a goal of having universal metaphors is a great goal, but you're, you're not necessarily going to get someone who has no previous computational experience to open something up and, and look at 40 different icons and make any sense out of them. You're never going to get me as a 12-year-old to understand what the hell that razor was. Um, I wanted to use the scissors. The scissors means something totally ludicrous, like when did anyone ever cut pieces of paper apart and tape them back together? Like, that's not how people edited documents. They used whiteout. Um, but I, I, I guess I would say that, that, that going after things that are more universal, like checkboxes, Xboxes, uh, not Xboxes, like consoles, but Xs with circles around them, um, sorts, sorts of things that we see all the time, that we, that we have a, a high level of, of uh, availability for, like a stop sign is pretty universal. Um, there are, there are a number of things that you can draw from, but I think ultimately uh, localization needn't just be language localization. There's, there's a, a reason to localize in terms of content and in terms of metaphor, because the metaphors that people familiarize themselves with are very, very different. Uh, the kids who are growing up um, messing around with sugar on XOPCs, that, that visual language is so far away from uh, the visual language in OS X or in any, in any of the Windows uh, releases, it's just, it's, it's, it's wildly different. Um, we need to accept that those, those things exist, but I think regardless, if you make it not scary to click the button, people will click the button. I think the, the thing that has really changed over the past 20 years is before you sort of had to be a 12-year-old who really didn't care if you broke your parents' computer to push whatever button it was, and you're like, oh, I guess I'll fix it if it, if it breaks. And that's how, I, that's how I learned everything that I knew about computers was by breaking them. But when I see someone who's unfamiliar in the space or who's nervous in the space, they won't touch things. And I think the more that you can invite people to touch things and say, hey, nothing bad's going to happen. It's going to be all right. And actually make good on that that that's that's for the best thing that you can do, and I think you know we saw how good of a job the ISO did at trying to solve this problem, and, and you know like they're they're su- supposedly the premier people at trying to communicate these ideas, and and a lot of their icons are are really quite good, but I think the visual metaphors don't necessarily need to be iconographic as well. I think like you can show the state of a file over time in various other types of visual ways um, and show its checked in or not checked in state as a, as a persistent view of the thing. Um, in uh, Visual Studio 2010, if you have code that's not checked in, it's just slightly colored differently. Um, stuff like that, that that just builds itself into the interface and doesn't need a discrete button, doesn't need to have an action, it's something you're persistently aware of, um, is also another option. Everything doesn't have to be an icon, it can be a state. First off, great session. Thank you. Um, the, th- the question I had had to do around most of the, t- the examples we talked about and looked at today had to do with fairly small micro interactions or you know icons or simple gestures. And I'm wondering if there's a point at which intuition is no longer applicable and we start 
crossing into the territory of a learned system and, and, and it's a system that builds on itself, but it's no longer intuitive as a large system. It's just a bunch of small intuitive interactions, and then it becomes a larger system. So I'm just kind of curious if intuition breaks down as a label for those larger systems and if there's a point you would see that at. I think it's broken all the time. I, I, th- I, think, I think you're either familiar with the system or you're not familiar with the system, and you can be familiar with, with large parts of uh, an even bigger system or familiar with very small parts of, of a, a very big system. I know people who can do 10 things in Photoshop, and that's all they need to do, and they need to magic wand, they need to color balance, and that's all they need to do. And so the rest of it is, like, is detritus. And I think like, the, the, the thing that I was saying earlier about trying to scale people up the other thing that you can do is, is learn what people want out of the program that they're using and hide the things from them that they don't need. Um, programs need to get more and more complex over time for people to buy the next one. And this is like sort of capitalist inevitability. Um, and that's g- good for the people who are using those high-level features, like background removal and all that stuff. But it's, it's not as good for people who don't need the whole thing. Hi. Uh, so really great talk. Uh, I was going to ask a little bit about, uh, you were talking about extended familiarity with things like keyboards and mice game controllers. Um, so these things that people build up this really expert uh, knowledge of how to use, and they're these physical devices that sort of have been maintained, I guess, for a long time. Um, so I guess could you talk a little bit about how you see that sort of applying to sort of these more freeform uh, modalities like such as touch or maybe freer, freer interaction do we want to get to a point where we have extended familiarity with these like, interaction modalities um, and maybe how we get there? I don't think we have a choice. Um, I, I think that, that there will be kids who type faster than I can on my QWERTY keyboard on a software keyboard. I just think there will. I, I think people get very, very familiar with interfaces. And I think there are certainly some affordances you don't have in terms of tactile um, feedback and, and direct location. but. Um, Kids can play games with virtual analog sticks. I, I can't. Like, I, I try and go in my iPad and play things, and they're supposed to be virtual analog sticks, and I'm just floundering. And I'm sitting behind a, a kid in a plane, and he's like, totally fine with it. Like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a certain level of, yeah, of expert familiarity and, familiarity and frustration at the first level, such that I'm never going to, to bother getting to that level of, of, of complexity. It's the same thing you see with PC gamers versus console gamers. Like, PC gamers. I'll wrap this up quickly, but PC gamers are still fighting the keyboard mouse war, um, and they're you know the vast majority of people playing first-person shooters are playing them on on controllers with two analog sticks because we have awesome assistive aim. There's a lot of great tech behind that, but once people have have really familiarized themselves with something, it's it's so hard to rip them away from it. It's why we have QWERTY and not Dvorak. You know, it, 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 these things are going to persist for a very very long long period of time, and I don't buy into like the tablet erasing everything else. Like, we will need interfaces that people are comfortable with because specialized interfaces are going to accomplish tasks better, and we want to accomplish the tasks we want to accomplish as fast as possible. That's why the, my artists, my, my company, use Cintiq tablets, and they have you know, pressure sensitivity. I don't need that. I don't need pressure sensitivity in my interface. They very much do. Um, and I think you want to encourage the complexities that are required from a task and you want to take advantage of people's understandings. Like, I'm a keyboard shortcut guy. Like, if I have to touch my mouse, it's a waste of my time. But that's not the standard interaction people have, and you need to design for 
you know, an accessible uh, and broad set of people. You need to have the keyboard shortcuts for me, and you need to have accessible, nice, well-laid-out icons for people who don't like to use keyboard shortcuts. Cool. I, I got to wrap up, but um, if you want to talk to me at all, I'll, I'll, I'll just hang around outside. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>